Good morning, church. I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Begin reading in verse 12 of John chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, carrying out, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Drop down to verse 27, if you will. This is Jesus. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him, and Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a desperate people. We need you through your Holy Spirit to speak to us, not just on Sunday mornings, but every given moment, every day. We need spiritual eyes. We have a pair of physical eyes. We have a physical heart. We have physical ears, but we need a spiritual heart. We need spiritual eyes, and we need spiritual ears, and that only comes from you. And so we ask for those things, Lord, in a moment like this, in a celebration of Palm Sunday, we need to hear from you. With so many voices, your voice is the preeminent one. And so we ask for it, Lord. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Now, there's a comic strip uh, by the name of Calvin and Hobbes. I've been a fan of this comic strip for a few decades now. Uh, In it, you'll find a young man named Calvin, not John Calvin, mind you, Calvin. He's probably about nine or ten years old. He has an incredible imagination. In fact, in this comic strip, Calvin uses his imagination to bring his stuffed animal, Hobbes, to life. Hobbes is a tiger that when he's alive, so to speak, he converses with Calvin on all sorts of very important topics. They go snow sledding together. 
They throw a baseball back and forth together. I'm not really sure how that works with imagination, but they do. They laugh and cut up together. They go on all sorts of adventures. But the one comic strip that rises to the surface, at least for me, and you know me, I, I spiritualize a lot of things, much to my own detriment. But in one comic in particular, Calvin is found by himself, staring up into the night sky, and there's no Hobbes in sight. And if you are an avid reader of Calvin and Hobbes, if you do not see the tiger, you know that Calvin's imagination is not in play. He's not using his imag imagination. In fact, what seems to be a real moment of clarity for Calvin, he shouts up into the night sky. Now, there's two parts to this sentence. Don't miss the first or the second. It has, you have to take it in both parts. He shouts up into the night sky, I am significant. And another panel just after that, as if waiting for an answer, Calvin looks up, wrapped possibly in the enormity of the galaxy with all of its gigantic stars, solar systems, and galaxies. He ends the sentence with, said the speck of dust. <laughs> the sad reality is that there are people who shout that every day, but not in the sense of what Calvin means. I think the, in the sense that Calvin is wrapped up in that enormity, but, but he's thinking, I'm small. I'm so small in this big universe. But there are those in the world that believe they are significant in the sense that they believe that they are the center of the universe. They walk around and say, I am significant, and do everything they can do to prop themselves up. What the world needs and what our church needs or the church at large needs is a reminder that we are not the center of the universe. My hopes and dreams are not the center of the universe. Or whatever else you want to put into that equation, the center of the universe is God. He is supremely significant. And our text this morning makes that incredibly clear, crystal clear. So without getting bogged down in the details, I want to give some background as to what Jesus is actually moving towards when he picks up uh, the charge to his disciples, go get me a donkey, I must sit on this donkey, and I must ride into Jerusalem. Without getting bogged into the details, I do think it's important for us to understand just how tense the situation is. You think America's tense? I, goodness, I, I think if we really delve deep into what Jerusalem was like during this time, I think you and I would not want to be there. Not at all. This was Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday for starters, the Gentile and Jewish crowds amassed in Jerusalem in staggering numbers. The closest record that I was able to find would place an exact number of the pilgrims descending on Jerusalem at just about 2.7 million people. The crowds consisted of many who were sick with various diseases, the inability to walk or hear or see, that's right out of Matthew 21:14. Many sought Jesus for healing right there in verse 17. There also existed a large group of people talking all over town about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That discussion actually infuriated the Jews, and they started to plot a uh, plan to kill Lazarus, John 12, 10. 
Another historian says that on the other side of town, just before or after Jesus rode in on the donkey, you could see Pilate, the Roman leader, leading his own military processional into town to maintain order during the Passover. So there was a lot going on. It was a powder keg. It could have exploded at any moment. All that controversy in one small place. And then you have Jesus riding into town on a donkey, absolutely at peace with what he was doing. John 18.4, if you remember, uh, about a year and a half ago, the Lord gave me opportunity to speak on John 18.4 about the arrest of Jesus. The narrator reminds us of one very important detail. The detail being that Jesus, when presented with his arrest, stepped forward, absolutely resolute, no hesitation in his voice, stepped forward, knowing exactly everything that would happen to him. And he did that for you and me. I want to look at the crowd because this crowd is absolutely correct in its assessment. Jesus is king. Make no mistake. Jesus is absolutely king. Many in the crowd had the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 firmly fixed in their attention. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read it for you. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. So those that worshiped and hailed Jesus as king are absolutely living out Zechariah 9, 9 in this moment. They are rejoicing greatly. They are shouting aloud. They see Zechariah's king triumphantly entering Jerusalem, and they are absolutely correct in identifying him as king. Now, I want to make four observations uh, this morning based on not only Zechariah 9, 9, but our text in John 12. From the text in Zechariah 9, 9, this, this crowd has firmly fixed in their minds worship, but for, for two very distinct reasons. King Jesus is righteous, make no mistake, and he is bringing salvation. He has brought salvation. I want to look at that first point. King Jesus is righteous. There is absolutely no evil in this king. As much as the religious leaders and Satan and anybody else, for that matter, all throughout the Gospels attempted to catch him in some sort of trap, whether a theological trap or a catch-22, it failed absolutely every time. And I can't help but imagine that Satan is somewhere behind Jesus as he's approaching Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, saying, the offer still stands. The temptation of Christ, he says, I will still give you all the world's. I will still offer that to you. I, don't, I really can't imagine a scenario where Jesus only told one or two people, get behind me, Satan. But I, I can imagine it happened all the time. The temptations over and over again. But make no mistake, Jesus is the righteous one. He's pure in every respect. No guile, no evil found in him whatsoever. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 22, 
Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. To this worshiping crowd, this Jesus, this king, this Jesus was totally unlike Romans, the Romans and Caesar. The Romans were far from righteous. The Romans cheated Israel with their unfair unfair taxation, occupied their territory by the thousands, defiled their practices, mocked their feast days, and hated their long and rich history. To the Romans, Israel was a nuisance and vice versa. But this King Jesus, wholly different, completely different. No sin, no evil, completely spotless. And I love that word spotless because it should conjure up in your mind the idea of the holy Lamb of God that John the Baptist talked about. It should remind you of the spotless Lamb that was the requirement for a sacrifice in the Levitical system. John the Baptist actually said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is completely spotless. He's completely righteous. Do you know what else this character, this righteous character means for you and means for me? You can trust him. You can trust him with your future. You can trust him with your present. You can trust him with that thing that's occupying your attention today. Because Jesus, including the Father, including the Holy Spirit, makes absolutely zero mistakes. He is absolutely righteous. Completely. So, number one, King Jesus is righteous. But number two, King Jesus is bringing salvation. That's the whole point of Palm Sunday, looking forward to the death of Jesus, the burial, and absolutely the resurrection three days later. Look at John 12, 13 again. John 12, 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This word, Hosanna, is Hebrew for save us now. Save us now. This crowd picked up on a Hebrew phrase that that is anchored in Psalm 118.25. The word is typically reserved for a earthly king, but now it is being applied to Jesus, and that is completely and 100% appropriate. Psalm 118.25 reads, Save us now, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The yearning there is liberation for sure. The yearning for liberation is coming from a desperate people. These people yearn to be treated fairly by a king with no guile, no evil. The people are desperate for liberation. And they were completely right in hailing Jesus as king. Only this time, this king conquers differently. King Jesus conquers by submitting to his will, to the will of the Father, by being humble, by giving his life as a ransom for many. It's right out of Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45. The salvation that Jesus is bringing in this moment is not necessarily liberation from, a, from political oppression. 
but from spiritual depravity, the sin that pervades each and every one of us. It is a liberation from a curse that pervades the whole human race, a depth of sin that pervades your and mine whole human nature. You and I need a King Jesus like this. No other Jesus will do. Not a fake Jesus who is some God and some man or a partial of either two. You need a complete righteous Jesus and someone, a King Jesus who brings salvation. He must be both. 1 Peter 3.18 gives us the reason why you need both. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Friends, you can forget having a relationship with the Lord unless you have a righteous king who stands in your place to bear the sins of you and for me. You can forget about a relationship with the Lord unless he triumphantly rises from the grave three days later. Unless we have a king who can defeat sin, death, and the devil, we are without hope. We are all spiritually dead in our sins to this day if these events do not happen. You and I desperately need a Jesus like this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made Christ his Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Notice those words, for our sake. The Father in His plan and in Christ in His plan sent His Son Jesus, and Jesus says, yes, I will become sin so they can be free. Jesus didn't know any sin. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is very clear about that. And all of this so that he can give us righteousness that we couldn't provide on our own. In other words, you and I need this divine transaction. Our sins are nailed to the cross with Jesus. And when you repent of your sins and become a believer, Christ's righteousness is credited to your account. Funny story, when I was in college, of course I had my own bank account and I had to stay very mindful of that so I could eat from week to week. I went to the bank to deposit a check, and when the lady had given me my receipt back, I noticed that it had 10,000 more dollars than where I began that day. And so, as the story goes, I called, called my dad up. My dad was a business owner. The only differences between my dad and my name is he's the, four, or excuse me, he's the third and I'm the fourth. So Charles Ernest Blankenship the fourth. And so the bank... Uh, from time to time, would give me surprises. <laughs> and it, was all, it always ended the same way. It's not yours. <laughs> That's why you're going to college, right? <laughs> One reason. But the divine transaction that you and I both need, right now, there is no surprise. There can be a righteousness that is credited to your account today. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, you could repent of your sins and trust Him today. And there will be a creditation added to your account beyond $10,000.
It is a righteousness that covers you and your sin, past, present, and future. Covered completely. A bank account that will not run dry. Make no mistake, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, this is what is in his mind. I will provide righteousness for my people. I will bring salvation. My question is for you. What happens inside of you when you hear this? Your heart, your mind. When you hear about the righteousness and salvation of the Lord, what happens inside of you? What are you thinking about right now? I ask that because we have many examples in the Gospels and in the Bible of individuals and whole groups of people who walk away from that. Walk away from that offer when they meet Jesus. They want an altogether different Jesus. A Jesus that perhaps puts you or me in the center of the world. Maybe a Calvin and Hobbes mindset. Perhaps even people don't want Jesus at all. If that's you, please don't walk away. Please don't walk away. And if you have walked away, please come back. Please. Whatever it is that you are considering more important than Jesus, please come back. As someone who loves you, as a family member in this church, please come back. There is no great sin that he can't wash clean. There is no great brokenness that he can't fix. You might be someone here who is teetering away from walking away from the faith. I get that. You see it all the time. Don't walk away. Come back. Jesus has come and has conquered your greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Whatever you are dealing with right now, let's take it to Jesus together. I'm not saying have it figured out. But come, we are a, we are a church family. Let's get it. Let's work on it. Let's pray about it. Let's rally around each other and plead with the Lord for an answer. So number one, King Jesus is righteous. Number two, King Jesus is having salvation. Number three, King Jesus must be worshipped. Absolutely. I must ask you again, what is right and proper when you're in presence of a king? What is it? It's worship. This king is worship. The Pharisees looked at what was transpiring around them, and they said to each other, look at verse 19. Look at this. This is super important. Because your reaction to this verse is very important. John 12, 19, what does it say? So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing? What is it that they wanted? Power? Religious influence? Accolades? Praise? Control over people? It wasn't Jesus. They didn't want him coming into town. He was causing way too much trouble. Do you know any people like that? When they look at Jesus, they look at the world around them, and they walk away because... Frankly, they're not gaining anything from being here. Whether it's their workplace or in their family or how about right here? Well, I can see that nobody likes me or, you know, I, I'm not the center of attention, so I'll just leave. 
Men and women, the center of attention for Calvary Baptist Church is Jesus Christ. It can't be you. It, ha- it cannot be you. It cannot be me. Perhaps when you think about the future of Calvary Baptist Church, instead of asking, how can Calvary Baptist Church rightly glorify and worship God in and around the community, you might ask the question, you, actually, you might ask the question, how can I gain from being here? That might be the, the problem that you need to crucify right now. How can I leverage my influence to make Calvary out to become what I want it to become? You see, the Pharisees are shouting into the night sky, just like Calvin from Calvin and the Hobbes, I am significant. You must listen to me. But they are shouting it in a defiance to the king of kings. They were called to herald peace, but used their position of influence to burden the people. This reminds me of a very famous exchange between Francis, uh, Pastor Francis Chan and one of the parishioners in his church. And it's, this is a quote that's gone around quite a bit, so I'm not surprised if you've heard it already. After a service, a parishioner came up to Pastor Chan and says, I didn't like the worship this Sunday. To which Francis responded, Brother, I love you, and I always will, but we were not worshiping you. Look back at John 12, 19. And here's the ironic twist about what the Pharisees said. The Pharisees used a word that has been used a number of times in the Gospel of John before. He says, world. Look at that. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gathering nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. That's actually what's supposed to happen. In an ironic twist, they use that word. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's plan of redemption has no room for those who want to steal God's glory. It has no room for people who want to take worship away from God and take it for themselves. God's plan of redemption has no room for people that want to set up their own kingdom. And I'm I'm the greatest offender of this. If if you think you can attend seminary and not think that you're going to one day build a kingdom, you are outside of your mind. (laughs) It happens every day. You know, the evil one gets up behind you just like he was probably behind Jesus on his march into Jerusalem. The offer still stands. We can make this life about you. This is what the Pharisees in effect are saying in this passage. Well, this is going nowhere. We are gaining nothing. I added this sentence here in my manuscript uh, this morning. I've debated of whether or not to leave it in or take it out, so I'm going to say it. My family just took a deep breath. Now, I've had some people come up to me and ask me, what do you think is going to happen to Calvary in the next several months? And I've said that. I've said it a couple of times. I've said, I really don't know what to tell them. I really don't know what to tell you, other than I can tell you what I hope will happen. I hope when people on the outside see us in the way we handle ourselves over the next several months, they see a people who are dead set on two things, worshiping the Lord and glorifying Him in all things. I don't know what the next couple of months look like, but it's got to be those two things. 
And we don't have those two things unless you have the first two points, a righteous Jesus who brings salvation. Do you understand the two? The four. (laughs) I'm not a mathematician. I'm I'm not Nixon either, okay? Thank goodness. But what the Pharisees in our text needed more than anything else was to bow the knee to King Jesus. And this isn't kick the Pharisees when they're down. It's the simple fact, if you look in a mirror, you and I both realize that there's a lot of Pharisee in each one of us. Those of you that follow me on Facebook, you, you poor souls, probably should not. I said a long time ago that the word Pharisee is one of the scariest words that I've ever read in the Bible. And the, the reason I, I wrote that was that I am always in danger of becoming the next Pharisee in this church. And I might be one of those. And what I need is a faith community, you guys, to keep me accountable, to encourage me. So I'm not here to bash the Pharisees. I think there's a little bit of Pharisee that still remains in each and every one of us. We need to give glory to the king. Give glory to God. The Pharisees, ultimately the reason why they did not, is found in Luke 19. I want to look at that. It's a parallel uh, passage from our text here. Luke 19. We're going to look at verses 41 to 44. I want to read that to you. This is my prayer for Calvary Baptist Church, that that we would have some of these things happen to us over the course of the next several months. Again, this is just after Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." Now, Jesus, right there in the middle, he's talking about something that happens in 70 A.D. when the Roman government had enough of Israel and destroyed the temple, laid waste to almost the entire area, dispersed the Jewish people. If there, there are books out there that just talk about all the horrific things that happened that year in that time. So Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. But it's the details around that description that we need to take note of most importantly. Number one, Jesus wept. Only three other, two other times in Scripture does it actually record Jesus weeping over an event. This king wept over a people that did not know exactly who they were seeing. They didn't recognize him as the one who was righteous. They did not recognize him as the one who was bringing salvation, who deserved worship and deserved glory. These people were spiritually blind. You need a sovereign king who weeps just as much as demands worship. He's not disconnected from us. Our pain and our suffering, the things that we go through, he weeps. He weeps for those in Nashville. 
He weeps for those that are in Simpsonville, in the depths of our sin, in all the brokenness. Jesus weeps. Yes, he's sovereign, but he also weeps. He's not disconnected. He has outstretched arms. The verse that says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls, still stands today. The offer from Jesus still stands. The, the rest for your souls still is an opportunity today. You can still gain that. And Jesus actually says, right here, would you know that the things would come for peace? Or would you know that if God would give you eyes to see peace? Jesus himself was peace. But it was hidden from their eyes. What we need as a church family, what I need, is for God to open up my eyes. To behold wondrous things out of his word. And ultimately, right there at the end of verse 44, in chapter 19, he says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The question I want to ask for us is, will we recognize the time of our visitation? Right now, Jesus has come. He has paid penalty for sins. He has risen from the grave. He is at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for his people Do you recognize the time of your visitation today? The offer of salvation is still available. Will you recognize the time of your visitation before the second visitation? Did you know that there's a second visitation? I want to describe that to you, okay? But I can't do it as well as the Apostle John, so I want you to look at Revelation 19. If you turn over there with me. Revelation 19. In verse 11. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the second visitation. And my friends, recognize what the first visitation means before that second one happens. There is opportunity to come to Christ today with all of the sin, all of the brokenness, being an orphan and becoming adopted, there's opportunity today so that you will not have to look at Jesus while he rides on that horse. You can be part of his family. So number one, King Jesus is righteous. Number two, King Jesus is having salvation. 
Number three, King Jesus must be worshipped. And finally, King Jesus will get glory. And Jesus says here, uh, excuse me, some of the Pharisees said to him, here, right back in uh, Luke 19.40, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell this crowd to be quiet. And Jesus answered, If you were silent, if all these people were silent, the stones would cry out. Creation itself would not be able to contain the excitement over the coming king into Jerusalem. I, I was thinking about this the other day. It, it seems to me that the only thing that God has ever created that doesn't praise the Lord as it should is, is us. You know, you look around, the creation has no problem praising the Lord, crying out to Jesus, giving him the glory that's due, our, due to his name. It's, it's us that needs help. <laughs> but the reality is, friends, God will get glory whether we jump on board or not. If we remain silent, God's creation will keep on singing. The whole reason that we exist is for this, not for anything else. I'm going to em embellish 1 Corinthians 10.31 a little bit, so bear with me. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, it does not say, whether therefore you eat or drink, whether there, therefore you work or play on the playground or do your homework or read a book, whether you write a poem or write a sermon, whether you're healthy or sick or alive or pass, whether you preach or teach, whether you are a pastor of a church or whether you are a church in search of a pastor, do all to the glory of God. And finally, if you think I'm exaggerating about this glory thing, the Holy Trinity is already there. 100% there. They don't waver in the glory due their name. Even to the point of putting Jesus on the cross, they did not waver. We finally, after four points, get to our conversation. This is a sermon series about conversations with Jesus. So I want you to go back to John uh, chapter 12, and let's look at the conversation that we mentioned earlier this morning in our scripture reading. John 12, 27 and 28. I want, I want you to read that with me. Jesus says, John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what Jesus is supposed to say? All of God's people should say, no, Jesus, if you say that, we're toast. It's over. Jesus says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it, said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. You see, God the Father said, I will glorify my name again. And I think that points to the cross. In the most horrific death in the history of mankind, God still got glory. Because on Jesus, all of my sins, all of your sins were placed on him. God, the wrath that you and I deserved was poured out on Christ punished in Christ so that you and I would not have to suffer eternal punishment. 
the agony of bearing the weight of sin upon Jesus absolutely glorified the Father. And Jesus, glorifying the Father, says, I will resolutely obey my Father. And it leads all the way to John 19.30. It is finished. Jesus finished the work that the Father gave him to do. For you, for me, but ultimately for his own glory. Now the sermon is altogether finished, but I have one question. There's no work... There's a lot of work left to be done. If we are to serve the Lord as the church, we must follow the Lord. And Jesus, way, way before he was crucified, says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He also says, whoever does not take up his cross is not worthy of me. My friends, let me ask you a question. Shall we not take up our cross? Shall we not follow our Lord in this way? Will you let us help you as your church family? If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, let's, let's talk. Let's talk about what Jesus has done because it's finished. There's nothing yet future to wait for in terms of your sin. It could be completely done away with in Christ. Let's talk about it. Maybe you're like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, standing with your hands around your mouth and shouting, I'm significant. And you recognize your smallness. Not really sure what to do. The reason that we exist, Calvin, if we could talk to an inanimate person, if we can sit that young man down, we could say, you know what? Jesus is righteous. Jesus has brought salvation. We can worship Jesus together, Calvin. And we can give glory to God together. Not because of anything we've done, but because he has completed the work. Will you worship him with your life today? Will you give him glory? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you marched into Jerusalem. We are thankful, Lord, that you were resolute in accomplishing God's will, the Father's will. Or we couldn't do that. We couldn't stand up on our own merits. But Jesus, you did. Thank you, Jesus. Before we take communion, Lord, we just want to be reminded that you absorbed the wrath that was directly due to us because of our sin. Thank you so much that it is finished. Be with our church, Lord, as we move into the future from this day forward, that we would glorify you and worship you alone. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Now, before we take communion, the hers are here. We're going to sing a song, okay?
forsaken so I will never be His grace is my salvation the gift of God the work of Calvary it is done it is finished Christ is is here. Love has triumphed over death forever. The cross needs no addition. Mercy is complete. His love is not in question. The Son of God has spoken over me. It is done. It is finished. Love has won. He is risen. Grace is here. Christ is one. 